John, recently you had uh, the opportunity to manage as an R&D manager uh, some big legacy software systems, and you took some interesting decisions regarding the modernization of some parts of it using some low-code platforms. Can you describe what was the thought process behind it, why you chose a low-code platform as opposed to maybe a traditional uh, kind of fancy hype uh, architecture? Yeah, sure. Um, so already, let's say, uh, in the beginning of my career, um, I got experience with, let's say, what they currently uh, name as uh, uh, low-code uh, platforms, uh, but they were called four-generation languages to enable software developers to create software more easily, uh, have a lower threshold to get more developers on the platform, etc. And yeah, I noticed some interesting experiences throughout my career, which made me think, okay, when I want to start with a new platform, have everything uh, set, uh, I want to apply these experiences and lessons learned uh, in order to yeah, make use of it and, and see how we can do things better. So basically, the, the productivity of the fourth generation language was still a major factor. Uh, maybe the architecture was not there or the maintainability of the product, but still the achievement in terms of productivity was still important for you. Yes, at that time uh, when we developed, uh, um, let's say, applications using fourth generation languages, the productivity difference was, of course, visible. Uh, it was much faster than the traditional uh, 3GL uh, like uh, C++ or C at that time, or even Pascal. Um, but um, yeah, you didn't have, of course, uh, the cloud to deploy. Uh, it was all local. Um, um, but the speed is, of course, good. Um, what we saw that uh, companies are able to have a shorter time to market uh, and therefore acquire business much more rapidly. Um, but there's one major factor uh, which uh, was often not taken into account and that's the maintainability on longer term because you can achieve these goals on shorter notice, make more businesses, but you know if you create an application or platform or a set of applications then uh, yeah, it, you have to keep it maintainable and able to ad adopt to changes, changes in technology you know, mobile came, internet came, all these kinds of things. And in order not to completely rewrite or get even stuck uh, in the end on the maintainability, you need to pay proper attention. Um, and also in that time, uh, you see kind of like the same things as, uh, as currently, there's a shortage on developers. So uh, the other benefit was then, if you lower the threshold, it's easier to adapt to these kind of languages you can also attract other kind of developers. Uh, sometimes they're now called citizen developers or they have other kind of terminology for that. Um, in fact, we were able to get uh, developers who had a university background in agriculture and they were converted to developers. But if you do that, um, of course, you have to make sure that your architecture is also in place and that you check it properly and that by that the maintainability is ensured also on longer term. And yeah, of course the business demand functionality is always, let's say the main factor, it's dominant in the, in the whole process. Um, and these uh, technologies also didn't force you uh, to use proper architecture. And then if that's not in place, then longer term, 
yeah, you, you lose your investment and the costs become too high and also you don't benefit the full potential of either the low code or for generation language. When, so, yeah. when presenting with the modernization challenge, did you start it with the tool set or did you start with the architecture of the phases of, on through which you want the system to go through mm -hmm. to reach a certain, let's say, better place for, for your IT infrastructure? Yeah. Yeah, we wanted a platform which is closer to the user, which is much more visible. Uh, things in terms of processes instead of code. That's why we looked at low-code uh, platforms. Um, and we quickly became uh, uh, interested in the OutSystems platform, especially as there were good reports from uh, uh, Gardner and Forrester, um, which caught our uh, attention. So. Instead of making a whole requirements list at the start, we just say, okay, what do they offer these platforms? And from that, we started our thought process. So thought of the lessons learned. And then if we talk about in terms of maintainability, what should we put in place to make sure when we get in these technologies and use them, um, what can we make sure we uh, protect our investment also in the longer term? So how did you approach trying to answer these questions? Did you ask, uh, hire consultants from OutSystems and making sure you have the right architecture from the beginning? Or how did you approach that? Yes, um, we hired a consultant ourselves to give advice on it. Uh, somebody who's experienced in that, uh, in that area. But also we asked those questions to OutSystems. So how do you make sure? And it quickly became clear uh, that they um, also educate uh, their users of the platform because it's in their interest. If uh, a lot of companies uh, develop applications fast but get stuck after a couple of years because of maintainability problems, it's also affecting them. So they uh, see it as a, one of the pillars, in fact, and they, call, uh, they, they have an architectural vision which is called the four-layer canvas, which they act actively promote and they even have some tooling to check if you correctly apply it. Um, so that's one of the factors. Um, looking at maintainability, uh, I see it as a combination of uh, three things. It is uh, both the product which need to support it, uh, your processes and the people. So this combination you need to look at. Um, and that's also what we did. So we looked what is in place to make sure we have all these components adequately addressed. Right, because many times one of the challenges is that not, not only IT's uh, legacy, but also people at the processes are kind of stuck kind of in the same age. Yeah. So you also have the added challenge of trying to introduce newer methodologies like Scrum, Agile and so on. So that's kind of added complexity mm -hmm. on it. So yes. how did you approach that? Um, yeah, if we look at from the product uh, perspective, um, we checked what are they offering. So for us, it was important to being able to deploy in cloud. We don't didn't want the complexity of on, on premise. And as a bank, that has an uh, additional uh, complexity or challenge that you have to convince your regulator and other authorities that you that it's safe and, and secure. Um, Having that in place, um, from a product perspective, we, uh, they actually 
have a sort of managed services on it. So one of the things with maintainability, of course, is you have to uh, keep regular release updates. Right. So one of the things is you have to have a policy of that. Um, and so we checked what are they doing with that. Uh, and they, as it is also a managed proposition, they uh, in fact do it for you even. So we, when, once there's a new release, um, let's say in the uh, third quarter, then we make sure in the latest second quarter of the next year we are upgraded to their latest platform. And we set some dates for the different environments. So we go from dev test acceptance to production and they handle uh, the upgrade for you. Of course, we need to verify, but all of these things are managed. So that makes it much easier. We can focus on our core and that is developing the functionality. So that's one of the product or proposition aspects uh, which were taken into account. From yeah. yeah. Uh, we, we discussed about load code, but actually the, the benefit of a low code environment is productivity. Did you make a comparison, for instance, in the productivity increase between, for instance, your platform and maybe a typical C-sharp.net platform or Java? Um, yeah, we did not um, do it ourselves at the beginning, but we uh, asked some parties. So when we select, uh, uh, let's say, our development partners, we asked about what they would think about the technology and how they look into it. So uh, a few of those parties or uh, vendors also responded to that and they came up with, yeah, uh, of course, a significant productivity uh, increase. What you actually have seen, it's one is the speed uh, but uh, we see even more productivity increase because of the quality. Yeah. We, let's say, uh, because it's a platform that checks uh, consistency, so that's also a product aspect, um, you get zero or very little technical issues or technical defects. And that's also maintainability and also productivity. Uh, so the whole uh, platform uh, makes sure that the number of defects we get out of a sprint is very low. It's yeah. it's, re it's really yeah, low. I, I, I was amazed, uh, like the number yeah. of issues after a sprint to be something like one or two. Yeah, and then not like for one sprint, but for a yeah, lot of sprints, actually it's for, quite yeah, consistent. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, that's one of the main uh, factors. And okay, that's not maybe. It also affects uh, maintainability on longer term, but you also see that productivity increase. Uh, later on, we also asked Yonder to check within uh, their development teams how they look to the productivity increase. So, um, at least three to five times uh, faster is achievable. And if you look at quality, yeah, it may be even uh, some higher. So it gives a lot of confidence also to our users. Of course, there is no such thing as free lunch. So mm -hmm. I think part of the trade-off is that you are paying for managed objects and per interaction. Yes. Uh, is there any kind of recommendation regarding the business model that you have uh, that would put you in the sweet spot for the low-code platforms? Or it should be generally applicable to any kind of business challenge and so on? No, I think you need to do a significant amount of development because in the end, it saves you development capacity and also gives back quality. So that you have to take into account in the in the business case of using these kinds of platform. Um, but it's also ease. If, if you see how we do deployments, 
um, is really one push of a button and we make sure all data, uh, let's say um, uh, migrations and conversions are also handled and our application managers at the bank, uh, they can really do it themselves and it's, it's really a, a job that requires little to no effort. And it's so, very transparent. So it's not only the development, it's also the deployment which pays off. So basically the, the costs of the runtime basically are being covered by the increase of the productivity in development, as well as the increase of the quality of the result. Yes. Uh, and that means that if you only do a very little development or a, a small scope for a short period, yeah, then I think you should reconsider uh, but if you have a longer term vision, we have in fact a whole digitalization roadmap. Um, and yeah, for that we are multiple years digitalizing the bank, uh, making, uh, implementing workflows, business rules to support and let's say even in, at our end decrease the manual, uh, let's say uh, actions and activities uh, and make them auditable, visible. Um, yeah, that really pays off. Uh, I also have a, a little bit of background in 4GL languages and now looking in retrospective, we've seen that some of the platforms really managed to survive well uh, in the sense that they are still supported, they still have a, a good uh, lifeline, let's say, mm -hmm. but maybe other platforms because there was a boom of 4GL languages and platforms in the 70s and 90s, some of the platforms become a niche product which pretty much no development. Looking on a longer roadmap, uh, aren't you afraid that maybe at some point in 10 or 20 years, uh, these low-code platforms would become a small niche without future that would just milk the customers So, and your product would be locked in? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think with any technology you have a lock-in. So even with .NET uh, or even if you have a Java stack, you choose certain components which in the end create a basis which is cost effort to move to something else. Um, looking at the low-code platform, yes, that, that's of course always uh, a risk. Uh, but therefore, it's also important to have an exit plan. Uh, and in fact, our, uh, let's say, uh, uh, regulators, auditors demand from us that we have an exit plan and it's also thoroughly tested. So actually, uh, uh, we already check the code if we detach it. So you can detach the code and you go from, for, in this, for instance, for OutSystems to .NET code. We took that as part of our, uh, I say that, the procurement process of uh, OutSystems, uh, but that was without recompiling and checking if the application really works. And we're now going to perform this this year. Uh, and OutSystems fully supports it uh, because, yeah, they also, they want to onboard customers. We also want to make sure that if for some reason they want to offboard, that they fully support it and they don't want to be seen as a lock-in. But any technology you use, you build up a code base and you build up a legacy, of course. Um, yeah, so it's always uh, a challenge if you're going to move to something else. How important was this exit strategy when choosing uh, for your specific platform? Uh, because it's not very, uh, let's say, often that you have uh, 4GL, a low-core platform that also provides this. Yeah. I think it's quite unique. Yeah, it was mandatory to have it. Uh, so it, in effect, if you detach, you have, uh, uh, in the past, you also have the Java code, uh, but now they mainly support .NET. So then you have, a, you get the .NET code and 
you can compile it and make it work even in Amazon in the, their own environment, but for, let's say not on the managed services uh, uh, environment, but on your own environment and then make it work. And we are going to see that results pretty soon. So basically the risk of being locked in in, in long term, it's basically zero in this case. Yeah, you could you could say that uh, being locked. Yeah, because the possibility is yeah. there, but it will never be, of course, an easy job. And uh, but yeah, if we uh, by doing this, then of course, like a business continuity plan, uh, it will make sure you have the right procedures in place to do it, and that feels, of course, uh, much more comfortable. And I, I know that you actually didn't just build some some uh, web products, but you also built some mobile products. Mm -hmm. Was the productivity and feature support just as good on the mobile side as, as it was on the regular side? Yeah, so far, we have developed, uh, let's say, a little functionality on the mobile uh, app, and because the web app has more priority. Uh, but the feedback we got from the development we did was uh, very good and we also see the productivity increase because with one, co uh, let's say, um, set of code, you can both deploy to Android and iOS and have a native uh, app even. So, yeah, that you can obviously see what is the productivity increase in instead of having two teams or whatever development on two platforms. So, yeah. Okay. I also know that basically uh, the, some of the parts from the Agile process were also moved outside of the IT uh, parts. So some of the areas of the banks started following some of the Agile practices, mm -hmm. like the stand-ups and so on. Uh, how did that happen? Um, yes, there are some, uh, let's say in Agile, there are of course a lot of uh, best practices, uh, which count for every project. Uh, whether it's an IT project or a business project or a combination of those, uh, because yeah, you want to show results frequently, uh, you want to make your changes as soon as they uh, come and be flexible in that. Um, and uh, of course you want to show the results uh, often um, and have the communication uh, well established. So yeah, uh, we introduced that also in the, let's say, uh, other projects. Of course, um, in the IT, the people can more easily adapt, so it takes more time and uh, more coaching, etc. But yeah, the, we want to use those best practices in those pro in those projects. If it would be to give an advice for an R&D manager that's looking to modernize their current legacy product, what would you advise them regarding the low code? Mm -hmm. um, of course, uh, uh, you have to think of your requirements, both functional and non-functional, the things we discussed about what should be in the product, uh, the exit uh, strategy that should be there, but also look at the whole software development lifecycle. So we talked about the product, but it's also about the process. And uh, the process and development starts when, of course, you uh, define your user stories, etc. Also, you have to define your architecture, um, your data model, etc. And so, and also apply, think of this four uh, uh, layer can canvas and apply it and also check it afterwards when you have implemented the uh, functionality. During, uh, uh, let's say, the uh, development, um, uh, of course, you also need to uh, make sure that best practices also, which are with the, uh, let's say, the traditional three uh, generation languages, and that you do your peer reviews, that you have your standards, uh, so 
define uh, your technical software quality standards. Um, and that's, that's important because whether it's a low code or another kind of platform, I need to ensure that on longer term uh, it's maintainable. Then there's another aspect uh, which we also implemented uh, and which I can also uh, recommend and that is have an independent party look at the software quality. So uh, we do business with, an, uh, uh, with an, uh, uh, a company who actually get our code and automatically run some processes to do static code analysis. Uh, and they come up with recommendations. So, and then in the in the sprints you apply those, so you can monitor also the uh, the technical software quality from that part point. And as a bank, it's important to uh, yeah, show that independent, like auditors, etc. They can always come and see. Okay, how are you managing it? How do you check the quality of your uh, of your code? So that's a full, let's say, yeah. Uh, uh, front to end yeah. and the software development life cycle. You you managed uh, you meant mentioned a kind of technical debt mm -hmm. at least twice. Once uh, making sure that you are always up to date your platform, mm -hmm. so planning up ahead of the time and making sure you are actually never uh, uh, ne never end up in the situation in which you are no longer up to date with your platform. Mm -hmm. But also you mentioned making sure that your maintainability is up to your requirements. Mm -hmm. So how do you plan for, uh, let's say, fixing technical debt in your current sprints? Is there a specific percentage of time that you invest mm -hmm. in making sure that is there? Because many times it's, it's very difficult to prioritize between functional uh, investment in, mm -hmm. in functionality and investments in fixing technical debt. Yeah. And of course, technical debt can never be perfect. It's just like security. It's an aspirational yes. thing. So how do you make sure that you're constantly making sure that technical debt still keeps uh, under control? Yes. Yeah, that's in indeed interesting. And uh, yeah, we apply uh, from the uh, SAFE, the Agile uh, Scaling uh, Methodology, uh, the PI planning, a program increment. So because we have multiple streams, now uh, of uh, development in diff different applications we ha also have a dependency um, so what we did um, as the the teams were let's say sprinting from one sprint to another sprint delivering functionality they also at some point uh, became a bit exhausted with that so what we introduced is a, a SIP sprint a stabilization innovation and planning sprint of two weeks we have them after six sprints, so let's say around three months. And the first week is for the team to fix also some technical debt, uh, 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 which they want to, uh, they prioritize themselves and prepare for the next week, which is the PI planning, program increment planning. So that's another, the next six sprints. And within that uh, next six sprints, we have, of course, the, the, the functionality that we implement in the different streams, but we have also a separate stream, and that's the architectural highway, we call it. And it's also referred to as our framework, uh, because in that we have, let's say, a, a technical items like security or other technical uh, issues that affect every application. Yeah. So defining this architectural highway as part of the framework, we um, assigned specific, uh, uh, let's say, resource capacity to it. And that is consistent throughout uh, the PI. 
And on top of that, we have then this stabilization, innovation and planning sprint after six sprints, which the team has a bit more freedom to um, manage themselves. So it's not based on functional, functional priority. So in that case, we continue to yeah, work on, uh, let's say, the maintainability and the security of our product. Right. Is that the same applicable also for innovation? Uh, do you make any difference between functional and technical innovation, for instance? I know that functional innovation is important for the actual business part mm -hmm. of the thing, but yeah. many times developers only think in terms of technical innovation. Mm -hmm. So as an R&D manager, how do you see the relationship between these two? Yeah, the functional innovation, of course, comes a lot from, uh, from, the, from the business. Uh, the technical innovation we do during this uh, SIP planning. So, for instance, uh, today we have the hackathon together with Yonder. All the, the whole team is, uh, is here. Uh, and yeah, we explore the, uh, uh, yeah, the, let's say, the technical challenges and which are possible so that we can bring them back uh, to the organization and show them what is possible. And we have good uh, uh, experiences from the previous uh, hackathons also. So in this SIP sprint, we also plan this, uh, uh, the hackathon. So the subjects are always uh, items that provide solutions to maybe pain points or solutions to optimizations, because basically you can, in these days, if you look at the technology innovations, mm -hmm. you can go in so many ways, yeah. in so many directions. How do you prioritize from the technical innovation, the ones that would really have an impact in your business? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we look at uh, some things that are really enablers for the functionality. So if they are successful, they can really uh, enable functionality in, in the coming period. But also sometimes uh, from another perspective, for instance, we have in our uh, current hackathon about uh, what do you need to do with a user manual? How do you approach it currently? We always used to have it online or maybe printed or whatever, but that's not from this time anymore. Uh, and yeah, the, our applications are quite self-explanatory, uh, but uh, in this hackathon, we try to see what are the new trends, what are the new things we can do with explaining how the, the process in the application or the application works. So that is, yeah, that's a different kind of uh, innovation, of course. And the third, uh, yeah, the third pillar of the, uh, let's say, lifecycle uh, extension and lifecycle management is the people. So uh, with the platform that we use, the OutSystems platform, we also make sure they're trained, they're well educated, uh, they can go to conferences to share their knowledge with peers, uh, technical knowledge. Um, and of course, uh, yeah, the hackathon also makes it possible to innovate and see what, what can be done with the, with the OutSystems platform or sometimes with an extension built in, for instance, .NET uh, to, make it, uh, to make those things happen. So it's really the triangle product, process and people, which should be integrated part of your uh, yeah, lifecycle extension. It's what the users expect. They expect that they are able to do their processes faster in a more easier way. Mm -hmm. So they don't really care that it's, it's low code or it's Java or it's something as long as it's enabling them to do something. Mm -hmm. So that's functional innovation. Mm -hmm. That's why I made the distinction because when you're talking about innovation, most of the time developers only think about technical innovation. But actually end users, 
they do not care about a technical innovation. They do not care about the technology mm -hmm. inside. They only care about what it enables them to yes, do. Yes, it's about enablers. Yeah. So from this perspective, sometimes like that looks like a functional innovation might not have anything to do with a technical innovation. Mm -hmm. It might be. They usually go hand in hand because technical innovation might provide some new ways to do some different functional innovations, but they are not necessarily related. Mm -hmm. And usually I put the, the, the difference between the two because many times I think it's a, it's a kind of a big split between what the technical people think and what the users require from this mm -hmm. perspective. So yeah. the fact that you can do functional innovation without necessarily going to the latest framework or the newest hype or having to put in there the newest, I don't know what kind of NoSQL database or libraries out there. And yes. in, from this perspective, I think it might make sense the fact that low code, it allows you to focus on the functionality as much uh, as possible, as little on the technology yes, side. Because the platform also evolves yeah. and they make sure they also incorporate new uh, technical innovations. Uh, for instance, native app development. Uh, normally you have to have a separate team with separate technology on that and build space, uh, separate expertise. But now they, they came up with the platform. So na native app development, it's in the platform with one uh, a set of code for both Android and iOS. So right. that's their innovation they put in, which yeah. makes enables you to do your functional, functional innovation. innovation. Yeah. Right. So basically, I think one of the keys of the low-code platform is that actually allows you to capitalize on the technical innovation that was done by somebody else mm -hmm. and use that to actually focus on your functional innovation, which is the only one that actually matters to your users. Yes. So basically, uh, low-code platforms allows you to capitalize on the technical innovation that was performed by others. So you can focus on the functional innovation, the one that actually matters to the end users. Uh, but you also mentioned that actually you are trying to stretch the boundaries because basically a low-code platform doesn't necessarily prohibit to add extensions and innovations in that. Yeah. Uh, through plugins and so on. And I think this is one of the things that you're doing at this hackathon, trying to add some machine learning and... and yes, uh, correct. Okay. Thank you very much for your information, John. Mm -hmm. Have fun uh, in the hackathon and hopefully we can have you for many, many new hackathons here. <laughs>